0: Celebrate the launch of David Rothkoff's new book, American Resistance, the inside story of how the deep state saved the nation by becoming a member today. This month, new members will receive a free signed copy of the book, along with the usual member benefits, including an ad-free listening experience, members only bonus content, an invitation to join the DSR network Slack community, and more. To take advantage of this offer, visit the dsrnetwork.com slash buy and select the option titled American Resistance. Upon successful checkout, you will receive a confirmation email with instructions on how to redeem the book. The book retails for $29, but is included with this membership option. You'll just pay for shipping. Please allow two to four weeks for shipping. Thank you very much.
1: Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of our podcast.
2: This week, the beginning of December 2022, we are joined from the midsection
1: of our great American Republic by Rosa Brooks of Georgetown University Law Center. How are you, Rosa?
2: I'm I'm well, David. I'm going to give you a map. One of these days, <laughs> so you know where Wyoming is.
1: Well, yeah, I know it's not the midsection. I know it's it's <laughs> sort of in the west and kind of the northern west part, right? <laughs> I mean, it's kind of the northwest quadrant, right? And are you just like getting a bunch of doggies out and and?
2: That, that's what I do here. I rope I up dogies. Yeah. Yeah,
1: no, I could just, I, I, you're really drawn to wide open spaces. I really, I admire that.
2: I was so disappointed as a child. I thought that uh, uh, Get Along with Little Doggies, I thought it was doggies. So for for many years, I thought it was a song about little doggies. And I was so disappointed to discover that it was not.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's the idea of great herds of dogs. Great herds of little doggies. Right. Yeah,
2: puppies. Grazing. <laughs> across, the Grazing across the open plains. Grazing
1: across the open plains. Um, yeah, no, that's a beautiful image. Probably not one that Ed had while growing up um, in uh, whatever part of England Ed grew up in. But we are joined from Washington, D.C. by Ed Luce of the Financial Times. How are you doing, Ed?
0: From our nation's capital? Our nation's capital.
1: As you like to say. Yeah. Well, we seem to be in a, you know one of those lulls, you know, They're one of those lulls in our nation's capital. We've had an election. Today, as we're recording this, there's one more election going on in Georgia. Then we're gonna sort of head into an interregnum, and then we're gonna head into a period in which Democrats furiously try to do stuff for three weeks, Republicans, you know, plan all sorts of hearings and mayhem. And then does anything happen? You know, does in 2023. Does anything happen in Washington or, you know, do we have to wait for the world to have a crisis before, you know, action is driven out of, out of, out of D.C., Ed?
0: Well, I, I mean, I guess the first thing, you know, if you're asking from a Washingtonian perspective that people will be looking at is the, the election of, of the Republican speaker, you know, whether, whether Kevin McCarthy, you know, who, as you know, is an empty vessel, He'll go to wherever he thinks the votes are, but the votes are, it's not clear he he has a majority of Republican, he has the whole of the Republican caucus. So therefore, we could actually go to a second round in which, you know, the House votes on who the Speaker is and, and then it could get very complicated. He's an empty vessel who's taking on water and sinking fast already. So I think that's the most important first event, and that happens whenever it is in the first week of January. And, and that has huge implications for what kind of lunacy the Republican Party, what brand of lunacy it will select in the House over the next couple of years. And it's not a question of whether they'll be lunatic, it's a question of the degree of lunacy. So that's the first thing I'd watch for. Second, of course, is I, mean, I marginally expect Raphael Warnock to win um, in Georgia. I'm not sure whether we'll get the results. You know, the, the, these have been very close Senate elections there, and there have been all kinds of litigation, and and there's a history, a recent history with Georgia elections. So we might not get the results. But if Warnock does indeed win, and we get 51 Democrats in the Senate, then you you would expect the Biden administration, at least in terms of foreign policy and prosecution of the Ukraine war, to feel a lot more uh, insulated from the crazy that we're going to be seeing from the House.
1: Yeah. I mean, theoretically, Rosa, couldn't the Biden administration, if the House is very closely divided, couldn't they focus on things that were sort of vaguely bipartisan, pick up 5, 10, 20 Republicans on initiatives like that?
2: In theory, yes. And, and in fact, uh, you know, there are a few faint signs that there may be possibilities for bipartisanship on some issues. I, I think that the flaw in that argument is, is that that assumes that the Republican majority of the GOP to get anything done, because if, if your affirmative goal is thwarting Joe Biden's ability to claim any victories whatsoever, then, you know, you actually have no incentive to reach across the aisle and find common ground. You just have an incentive to block everything possible. So I'm not super optimistic. But going back to your earlier question, Ed, about what's going on in Washington this week uh, and whether we should care, one of the most important Supreme Court cases uh, of the decade is Getting oral argument tomorrow uh, in Washington D.C. Uh, it's a case of Moore versus Harper, which is a case that involves the degree to which state courts have the power to provide judicial review to state legislative decisions about uh, how elections are conducted. So the, the context in which it arises is, is one that has to do with things like gerrymandering. You know, if the state legislature creates some kind of extremely partisan and un, unjust gerrymandering to permanently you know, enhance the power of one political party. Can the state supreme court, using the state constitution, be a have judicial review over that decision and potentially overturn it if they find that it's inconsistent with in the state constitution? And North Carolina is essentially arguing that since the U.S. Constitution gives state legislatures the the power to regulate, you know, the time, time and manner, and so forth of uh, elections, that therefore no other branch of government on the state level, has any ability to say anything otherwise. Um, it's, a, it's an argument that is incredibly significant because if, South, if North Carolina is successful, the logical extension of that would be that since the Constitution also gives it to the states to s- select uh, electoral college members and send people to the electoral college to select electors, that that would mean that a state, constitute, state legislature could effectively overturn the popular vote. Which is what we saw Trump try to persuade them to do in several states in 2020. They could overturn the popular vote. And they could send whichever candidate selectors they wanted to to Washington. So this is one of those decisions that it seems kind of boring. It's not on the surface, unlike something like abortion rights. It's not on the surface, super obvious why it's so important. But if uh, the Supreme Court ends up finding in favor of North Carolina, it could just be a devastating blow to any sort of future American
1: democracy. Yeah, well, you know, the court did not cover itself in glory yet again yesterday as they were hearing a case about the right of creative workers to determine who they worked for with an eye towards denying services to groups like LGBTQ groups. And Justice Alito made a very off-color inappropriate joke about Black Santas not letting little kids who are dressed up as KKK members, you know, sit on their laps and, you know, that there was somehow some connection between this. The court really seems to have lost its bearings, hasn't it, Rosa?
2: Is that a rhetorical question, David? (laughs) Well, you're a a law professor.
1: You're you're a professor of these things.
2: No, I mean, look, the, the historical difference is that we have some groups and classifications that are protected, where you can you can discriminate based on somebody's height. You know, you can discriminate because you don't like the shirt that they're wearing, but you can't discriminate against them based on their you know, race, sex, national origin, etc. And the question there is, do we, you know, like, do we or do we not include uh, uh, same-sex couples under that umbrella, where you know you can discriminate arbitrarily for all kinds of reasons that we don't we don't deem socially significant, but we're going to protect. We're going to protect groups that we think would otherwise be discriminated against. But, but you know, I, I I mean, going back to my argument though, that that the Moore versus Harper is super important. It's kind of the you know, if if you don't have meaningful democracy, then it doesn't really matter how you're doing on any other substantive issue, you know, because the 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 promise of democracy, you know, which can produce all democracy can produce all kinds of stupid decisions and stupid policies. But the promise of democracy is that they can always be changed. You could always reconsider it. There's always a chance for other people to say, hey, wait a minute, let's do it differently and attract votes and change things. Whereas when you, you know, if you do away with democracy, then you do away with the possibility of, of changing. So, you know, you get a Supreme Court decision that's bad when it goes to something like gay rights. Well, that would be bad. But in a democracy, sooner or later, you can have a different president appointing different Supreme Court justices, and maybe that would change. You can have legislators passing laws that would provide those protections, even in the face of uh, the court not doing so. But if you, don't, if you don't have that sort of baseline protection for the democratic process itself, then you lose your ability to make any changes to any of the substantive rules in the future.
1: If you're like me... You're probably a bit frustrated with the state of our political system today. So why does American democracy look the way it does, and how can we make it more responsive to the people it was formed to serve? Democracy Decoded is a podcast by the Campaign Legal Center. It examines our government and discusses innovative ideas that could lead to a stronger, more transparent, accountable, and inclusive democracy. In season two, host Simone Leeper covers everything you need to know about voting in the United States. She speaks with experts from across the country and voters representing impacted communities about the deliberate barriers to voting that exist today. She asks, how can we make our voting system more inclusive? Because our democracy works best when every voter can participate. Listen to the latest season at democracydecoded.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, you know, I mean, Ed, there was a big kerfuffle in the past couple of days. More than a kerfuffle, but, but you know, uh, less consequential than what Rose is talking about here. I think that the Former president of the United States said the Constitution should be terminated in the case of obviously fraudulent elections, suggesting that that's what the case was in 2020. And when you take that in the context of you know what Rose is talking about, I mean, he's saying insane stuff, but Supreme Court could actually do some damage to democracy in a much more substantive way sooner. And, you know, I think everybody's sort of breathing a sigh of relief. But when I hear what Trump said and listen to what Rose is talking about and then listen to the Congress, and Republicans talking about their various
2: investigations. That is a constitutional crisis, by the way, when a former president suggests that you could just terminate the Constitution. That,
1: that's, that does get us yeah, to constitutional a, crisis. Yes, um, yes. We've been waiting for you to say that for a long time. But, but, <laughs> but then... You know, you've also got a new special prosecutor who's subpoenaing state officials about the January 6th thing. I mean, it seems like a lot of the issues that concerning American democracy are actually likely to get more fraught in the months ahead, not less fraught. It's not behind us.
0: If you're, um, if you're sort of looking out to what will happen in 2023, beyond the sort of theatrics, that we're going to get on Capitol Hill. A Trump indictment must be, uh, must be a higher than odds even chance that there's got to be a, a Trump indictment. There are so many possible Trump indictments, not just the Jack Smith inquiry, Special Prosecutor Inquiry, but, you know, in Georgia and in other jurisdictions. And a Trump indictment, um, you know, is, is a, a massive testing moment. For what the political mood is in this country, because he will then amp up times five what he was saying on Truth Social or wherever it was he made this comment about suspending the constitution. He will amp up the outrage and challenge people to disobey the law. I don't know what exact iteration he'll come to, but it'll be it'll be insightful. Insi- sorry, incite incitement and and seditious. And if. Nothing happens and the course of the, the law is allowed to, to continue, then Trump, you know, as a paper tiger will, I guess, finally you know, be, be something we can agree on. If, on the other hand, you know, this, this revs up the base again and massively increases his chance of becoming the nominee, because right now he's about 50 50 with DeSantis, who, uh, you know, as you know, the New York Post rechristened the future. That strikes me as a very, very important test case. But Harper v. Moore is way more important than our normalization of whatever seditious things Trump is saying. And I think Rose is absolutely right. It's, it's one of those issues that only two or three percent of America are going to be you know, following in any detail. But if it does go the wrong way, and if, if the Supreme Court holds North Carolina, then you're going to have you're going to have a complete sea change in what could happen at every single presidential election will be in question. So I agree fully with Rosa that that is more significant than, than whatever test Trump is preparing for the Republic next year.
1: This strikes me as deeply worrisome. It doesn't strike me that there's anything that can stop it. I mean, the Republican majority on the Supreme Court has been pretty. pretty.
2: No, I think there's a, there's a reasonable, I don't know if I would go as far to say substantial, but I think there's a reasonable and significant chance that the court will not rule in North Carolina's favor on this. The arguments being made by North Carolina are arguments that were considered really fringe, even by extremely conservative Republican jurists, uh, only a couple of years ago. So on the one hand, we you know we've seen some sympathetic-sounding noises from several of the justices, at least four of them. But I, I think there's a there's a decent. I, I don't want to say, oh, I'm confident. I'm not confident um, in the Supreme Court doing the right thing. But I I am not hopeless about this one either. I think there's a pretty decent chance that they will rule in a in a direction that is a victory for democracy.
1: And another, you know, I saw a a series of tweets by Bill Kristol today about, you know, his fantasy. And his fantasy was kind of Trump gets indicted. Po- I don't know
2: about anybody's fantasies. Why are we talking about
1: what? this? By Bill Kristol's fantasies?
2: Well, yeah. I mean, no way. You know, keep it to yourself.
1: Well, that's a, that's a good point. Um, but uh, it's a political fantasy. So I, it's not quite as unsettling as
0: it, 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 for me, it's a, it's a, also an erotic fantasy, but we can go into that another time.
2: <laughs> Please.
0: Wow.
1: Um, well, I'll, I'll leave that. Yeah, I'll leave I, that to you and Bill Crystal. But he, well, you know, one of it was you know Trump gets indicted.
0: Yeah, that was my erotic fantasy. Yeah, right. right, right. <laughs> and, and then he's like, I, and
2: I, I, the
1: I, Republican Democratic Party moves on, and <laughs> and then he says, and then he says, and then Joe Biden decides not to run and passes the torch to a younger generation, and we have a generational shift in American politics. And isn't that great? And I was like, why does Joe Biden, I mean, this notion that the presidency or the U.S. government is a job for one person is kind of crazy, right? The president is the chairman. The company can be young, forward-looking people, or it can be old people. You know Joe Biden if he gets reelected, but he's got a bunch of young people who are preparing to help run America for the next twenty years. That's a generational shift. Doesn't have to be the president. Why? What? What is this fantasy?
0: Look, I mean, I'm worried not about Biden's ability to uh, be reelected in 2024, particularly against Trump. I'm worried, you know, about his capacity. uh, Even taking your chairman of uh, of the board, chair of the board analogy. To heart uh, for his capacity to sort of be a vigorous president in his second term, and therefore you know set up a 2028 DeSantis scenario. I, I, I'm also not so skeptical as some people are about the breadth of um, talent available to the Democratic Party. Uh, I think there are quite a few good names out there. There's you know P- Pete Buttigieg. There's there's Amy Klobuchar. There's uh, Gretchen Whitmer. There's a, um, that there's Roy Cooper. I mean, there's there's a lot of names if once you start thinking, thinking down the list. And so I'm not that worried um, that the Democrats wouldn't be able to produce a good nominee to take on DeSantis or Trump or whoever it might be. But Biden's been doing a great job, and he keeps you know confounding low expectations. And expectations remain pretty low, so I suspect he'll keep he'll keep beating them. So I'm not theological on this point, but. I do worry that anybody, you know, any kind of job when you're 82, which would be his starting age for the next term, is really hard to do, let alone chief executive of, of, of the world's leading superpower.
2: No, I think that's right. I mean, I think Joe Biden is doing a good job, but I also think that, you know, starting a second term as president when you're whatever he'd be, 82, is not ideal. You know, I think the, the answer is, well, is it a good idea or not? Is it sort of was it a good idea compared to what? You know, if the alternative is Donald Trump, you know, I'd rather have Joe Biden at 107 be president. You know, if the alternative, if the alternative is some, you know, vibrant, interesting, capable younger person in the Democratic Party who has the ability to attract votes, you know, then all things, all things being equal, absolutely. I think, I think it would be better to have a younger person. I think it would be more likely for a younger person to attract people, to attract independents, to attract potentially some disaffected Republicans, you know. I don't think Joe Biden has the Hillary Clinton curse, which was just that people, fairly or unfairly, really didn't like her. But it's pretty clear that amongst the Republicans, it's getting kind of close to that, you know. So I think I think even for that reason only, you know, having somebody who would be a little bit of a fresh start. Now I'm not sure who that person is, you know, and 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 I do, you know, as Ed says, I'm not. This is not something where I, I have a hard opinion, you know. If it turns out that there's just no none of the younger folks emerges from the pack. Looking like they have any real capacity to to do that, well, then Joe Biden's better, no matter how old he is. But but I certainly I, I hope that one of the younger folks emerges as a leader.
1: I want to dig a little bit deeper. This is the point we take a break and we say goodbye to the folks who are listening in the general public and say you want to listen to the whole podcast, you should become a member. Doesn't cost that much, and uh, it's like five bucks a month, and then it helps support all the things we're doing which is many podcasts and other kinds of events and fun things. And so go to the DSRnetwork.com, click on membership, become a member, do it now, you know, or give it to somebody for Christmas, be, you know, be holiday spirited. And
2: then you can listen to the whole podcast. And for those of you who are members, stand by.